Hello, welcome to We Don't Talk About the Weather. Political discussion from the outside may look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and this is Hugh. Hello. And we're here to talk news and politics. Yeah. Another another week, another podcast episode, another week of Corona. Oh no, wait, no, we can go out now. No, we can't. Damn it! Why not? We can sort of go out, but not really. Well, I told you the rules. It's tier three, no pints. Tier two, pints with food. Tier one, pints. So, right. Because like, my partner was like, oh, yeah, you know, we should like get everyone together and, and go to the pub. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was like, well, we can't really. Well, we can, but yeah. we have to have what's called a substantial meal. Yeah. And then I had to look up. She's like, isn't the Scotch egg a substantial meal? Nope. Because a Tory MP had suggested that this mm-hmm. was a substantial meal as opposed to a pile of pile of chips. Yeah. Um, and then I looked it up and they said, no, it's not. It's something that you would have, you know, for uh, breakfast, lunch or dinner. So nothing, <laughs> a single sandwich <laughs> and a tin of beans. <laughs> Just turning up to the pub. It's like, okay, I'm going to have my pipe with my substantial meal, but I brought, my, like, you know, like I bring your own bottle, but I brought yeah. my own tin of beans. I'll sit here eating my tin my, of beans and a pint of mild, I'm, please. I knew eventually that authentocrats would make it so that carrying around a tin of beans was your passport to get into places. <laughs> but <laughs> oh. no, it's it kind of it kind of fucking sucks because like yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it all does. it's all it's all. There's no food to be taken from home. You know, you're mm. still only allowed with your own like household indoors. So you'd have yeah. to eat this substantial meal outdoors, and then all the confusion about substantial meal and like yeah, there's a lot of funny stuff around it, but. It's so obviously a bung to pubs that have food like capabilities. Yeah. Because they're not going to give them a bailout. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, don't worry. Everyone who drinks there will be ordering a, ordering food. Yeah. And like just sort of you know? base level, like say I, I was working it out. I reckon for a lunch, if I'm going at it, I could hit four, maybe five pints. <laughs> you're about to say four or maybe five substantial meals. <laughs> what? Well, like, yeah. Are you allowed, are you now allowed, you're talking. Are you allowed to eat multiple substantial meals in a row? Well, I mean, the principle of continuity. I once, with my partner, who is significantly smaller than I am. Yeah, she is tiny. Um, we used to go to um, Witherspoons in Nottingham. And because we couldn't decide on what we wanted and we wanted a bit of everything, we used to order two platters. <laughs> And not eat everything, but have a bit of everything, and then ask them whether they could take, we could take it home. <laughs> sometimes they said yes, sometimes they said no. I like to think that they were more kind of shocked <laughs> by seeing something very, very special. But it's um, it's gonna, it would cost so much. It just means a pint costs so much more. Yeah, and you know, like before yeah. we were talking about factoring in the notion of a of um testing into having a pint like if you'd had to mm. say you have to have your i i'm clear of coronavirus um 20 pound test then yeah you know a week then you know you're going to be then everything you know just it's just another thing to make it unaffordable and it's just that it's just like well obviously i'm not going to go for a pint also it's that thing the rule of no lingering that it's like i don't want yeah. that yeah it's but it, that's classic isn't it because that's what uh, the subconscious desires of retail, yeah. of the retail, the retail hive mind, yeah. is what they've always wanted. Yeah. They want to get you in there, get your money, and get you out. Oh, but and why that don't... has been factored into like decision making about health regulations. And then they bitch about how, why doesn't Britain have a cafe culture? 
Yeah. It's like, well, because you, you treat us like you treat us like shit and demand that we leave as soon as we stop paying money. I'm am ju- just fascinated that obviously, like I said, this is a this is a bung to to pubs who to to say, look, we'll give you this, but you're not getting any actual money. Yeah. Um, it's fucking nudge. It's nudges again. Mm. It's like in the Cameron era. Yeah. It's behavioural economics. In yeah. the year of our Lord 2020, in the middle of a pandemic, we thought we can subtly manipulate human psychology so that they spend more money. <laughs> it's like, are you fucking kidding? Yeah. Do you see um, <laughs> um, Covent Garden is, um, every day is going to dust Covent Garden with fake snow to try and make it look more magical to encourage people to come in. And it's like, Covent Garden, when there's not many people around and it's Christmas and it's snowy, like there was one year it, I was 18 and my nursing bursary had just come in, but I had to take the cheque to a bank, and I had to walk because the snow had broken the tube, and I had to walk from... um, Uh I had to walk from Finchley Road all the way into town. And so I got to go to Covent Garden when there was virtually... Because that's like... Covent Garden was the nearest bank to Waterloo. And I got to see it with snow on it, and there was virtually no one around because you couldn't get the train. And it was beautiful. You got your... Your magical winter wonderland. Yeah, it doesn't normally look like that though. Even if you put a couple of du- a bit of dusting of um fucking fake snow on there, and encourage people to go <laughs> shopping, it's going to be horrible. Like, who's going to get the fucking tube to go like to go to the Disney shop? Ugh. Well, I mean, again, that's a that's a a, pro- a problem of the focus of retail. Like, I mean, we've just had. Debenhams and Arcadia Group and all that group of companies go out of business. Yeah. Um, there was another one today. I can't remember which one it was. Uh, bon Marche. Okay. Oh, yeah, that and was like, like the second time they've got into administration in like a short, very, very short period of time. Yeah. And it's just like you've got this huge crisis. You've got everything like f- through gentrification and through kind of the trends of the last 40 years, all leading to fancy retail experiences with shopping centres and with town centres being given over to that, to commercial renting. And then you've got a government that just kind of goes, eh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, oh, it's not really our job. Yeah. And it's like, it, it's just one of those, like, signals of the apocalypse not things going under but just the fact that they're really not that bothered whether these significant sectors go to the wall you no know? no not at all yeah it is all uh, but you know you i've been the thing i'm not going to go to the shops i'll buy for it online i've been spending the last week looking at supporting an independent business an artisan a proper craftsman ah. because i was looking at getting a custom fight stick mate um, as as a little as a little present for myself because I I want I want one. <laughs> um, so what's it like for people who might not know what what is a fight stick? Okay, well it's not a fight stick because I've already got a fight stick. Um, but it's a hitbox which is like a fight stick, but you replace the stick with buttons, so you could. Like be replaces more an arc- old arcade like an old arcade cabinet like. Yeah, but instead of the instead controls. of the, instead of the stick. It will have four more buttons for the directions, so you can input the input them faster and more accurately. Um, right. And the, one of the main reasons I'm doing it is because the stick is fucking murder in my wrist, um, and it can be murder <laughs> on your wrist when you play for a long, long time. Um, but yeah, so that's 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 what that's what I've been doing this week is spending a lot of time trying to work out what is the exact artwork I would like on it. <laughs> <laughs> 
and trying to source Pen- buttons. Penis Sonic still up for grabs? <laughs> no, it's not going to be Penis Sonic. But, um, and also trying to source specific buttons because I thought, see, no, just getting into the, the nerd stuff now. See, I was looking at just getting normal Samwa buttons, which are very good Japanese arcade buttons. But there's like, I think it's an American company that have these buttons that are like retrofitted with um, cherry switches from a mechanical keyboard. So they work even quicker. <laughs> <laughs> Shaving off precious microseconds. Yes, yeah, exactly. Well, look, it's. It's important so that you can control men who never were. <laughs> it's important <laughs> for me because of reasons. <laughs> I'm doing research. I'm not mum basing my self worth around my rank in Street Fighter Five. I'm not doing that. <laughs> it's different. <laughs> yeah, that's so rather doing. than rather than deal with the real world tier system, you're kind of inventing your own. Yes, exactly. But cool. I know a clear way out of each tier. For this one, I don't know in the real world how to get out of any of these fucking tits. Okay, yeah, so first off, this week we were talking about how we wanted to have a little break this week from a more from a deep dive on a thing. Um, Next week, I think we're going to maybe... We've got something to look at that we're quite excited about. But this week, we're mm-hmm. looking at, you know, some hot takes, some general stupidity online, that kind of thing. And the thing I was going to talk about was a thing that has been... Like, I looked at the date that this article was first published. And so, yeah, it's been like a month of me being annoyed at it. But also, it's been a year, and it's also been five minutes because of time. Um... So, in the Cow magazine, the Cow website, unheard, a mm-hmm. uh, woman, Polly McKenzie, who you may remember from four years ago, the Lib Dem ministers shared, ag- um, started agitating for a 5p charge on plastic bags. It took us months to persuade Cameron and Osborne. We finally got the policy in an, 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 an eve of conference trade in return for tightening benefit sanctions. That woman. Ah, I yeah. wondered whether, because I, I, I knew who this was, this person. Yeah. Um, but I wondered if she was the one who made that state. Ah, oh, good. Good yep. to know. It's, it's good that to one. know. Uh, former assistant and speechwriter for Nick Clegg. Um, she is now um, chief executive of, of um, Demos. Demos. Demos is, it? is Polly, McKen- Polly McKenzie, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, and she did an article. Um, uh, Wales has never been a nation. Now, okay, first off, first paragraph. Draco Dormien's Nunquam Titolandus, Never Tickle a Sleeping Dragon. It's the Hogwarts motto, but no one in government reads Harry Potter, and the Welsh Bonk. dragon, asleep for nearly for nearly more than 600 years, is stirring into wakefulness. So, automatically, bold, it's bold like... opening. Yeah, automatically, you know, there's a couple of things that are wrong there. Like, yes, they do read fucking Harry Potter... Also, I'm, I didn't want to. I don't want to read anymore because you know, fuck off with that Harry Potter bullshit. Really, really, really. Could you tell it was a Lib Dem from the coalition? Yes. Yeah, exactly. By opening with Latin and a Harry Potter reference. Yeah. Um, so she then goes on and on and on to explain how Wales has never been a country. It's never been a proper country. It's had. It's been a population. 
it has like it's got a people and a language and a culture, but it's not a country. It's never been a nation of its own because of different historical reasons, like because one robber baron had control of eighty percent of it then that doesn't mean that it's Wales. You know, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of looking at history and skipping out some, like, quite big bits of Welsh history. Um, but basically, she's got her rules that about what a country is. And her rules about what a country is, the thing that, that stuck with me is how British this is, and particularly how English this is, despite, how, despite her being Welsh. Um, that this notion of, these are the rules that, govern whether a country is allowed to be a country and we've decided that this country well this this place obviously doesn't adhere to those rules it's that you know that english superiority thing yeah i there's i just i hadn't read this before you drew my attention to it and uh there's a there's a couple of lines here you know uh all the excitement about england's northern border meaning scottish independence is distracting us from what's happening on its western one exactly the same political forces are conspiring <laughs> to boost the Welsh government and with it the legitimacy of the campaign for Wales's freedom. Don't get me wrong, Welsh nationalism is still a minority support, a minority sport, but polls in the last month or two suggest now a third of voters would choose independence in a referendum tomorrow. Um, like that whole thing of they're conspiring. Yeah. Yeah. In liberal language, that means whatever they're doing is automatically illegitimate. Yeah, and uh, you, you know, know, like and, uh, you know, a measly, a measly thirty-three percent. You know, a, a Lib Dem sneering at those kind of numbers is funny. <laughs> yeah, um, it is very funny. <laughs> it's just hilarious. Um, but yeah, she skips like what the main thing when I was sending to you. Like she talks about like Glendower and um, the other one, Llewellyn the last. Um, yeah, but like she misses out ones like. People like Howell Dar, and that one annoyed me because I sent you the pictures of him, who literally looks exactly like, a, like a, like he's reading tweets about how Wales shouldn't be independent. <laughs> <laughs> and but my thing, my main issue with it wasn't even um to do with really Wales. It was to do with it's it's that that attitude that that very um, southeast, that very London political British superiority thing of it's, well this isn't yeah. a real country it's an it's an imperial mindset and yeah. like there's the whole thing of i mean yeah she goes through the through the history of wales never not quite having the kind of kingship she believes it needs to have in order to be considered a nation yeah because she even says at one point the welsh are a people no question yeah a people with a language a culture and a heritage but what are their lands and it's like, well, if you're going to keep reframing the notion of nationhood around lands and around things, you've already you've already re- like called them a people. Yeah. You know, like what is Wales not having a history of independence and a history of independent feudal kingship? Is that fundamental to it not being an independent polity? Look, they don't you know, have it, a line of kings going back a thousand years like England does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you know that mean, one that one line yeah, that exactly. they all like to go on about. <laughs> yeah, it's just one line. All the way back. Just one. <laughs> Perfect. Pure. And like I don't get the idea that like, yeah, oh yeah, because one ruler just never stood over all of modern Wales means it doesn't deserve it. Like I think you have eight hundred years of history that form at least a certain amount of like 
nationhood in yeah. somebody's in somebody's mind. Like, and it is always this thing of like what she does is the rhetorical trick that they all do is like, well, Wales can't be independent because it can't be a nation. Mm. And it's like, well, what if it wasn't a nation? What if it was a republic? What if it was a federation of counties? What if it was a? There are a lot of other yeah. polities. There are a lot of other political units that you could use to um, describe an independent Wales. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and it's just like, and and the whole kind of like tracing it back, um, and and it's it's setting the terms for how people think of their own political units. Which I, I mean, I thought was out of fashion, but apparently, when it comes to to um, devolved nations, is is not the way it goes. Like, <laughs> if she's like, well, because you didn't have these political arrangements before, you can't have them again. It's like no one like bitches about San Marino or Monaco. No. No. Those were independent, you know, for whatever it's for for whatever political arrangements they have, they have some kind of independence and some kind of political arrangement with their larger the larger nations around them as to their political status. Hmm. And these well, it wasn't just because, oh well, they've always been independent. Because yeah. I mean, at the same time, like you look at the Kingdom of Kent and there have always been independent parts of of England yeah. that have over time been swallowed up and um, pushed back and been repressed and and all that kind of thing, you know. Like these things are are fashioned by history. They're not like not fa- like they're fashioned by these historical processes, which aren't didn't just get to a point in like 1701 and stopped. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, um, does Monaco have a king? It feels like they have a king. Monaco has a prince. Is a princedom, isn't it? Um, well, and I assume their line goes back for a thousand years. Yeah, um, Monaco. Let me just look it up. Yeah, it's the Principality of Monaco. It's a sovereign state. Yeah, um, but it's like obviously tiny. It's basically a, a city state. Yeah, and like that's another thing you could think of of terming these things. There's just no, there's no imagination, and when there's no imagination around around saying someone can't do something mm. unless there's a a real peril, because she doesn't talk about any of the peril. No. Of like the usual arguments of like Wales shouldn't be independent because it would be bad for its economy or yeah, something. Yeah, it doesn't have enough money. Um, there's there's no yeah there's no um, there's no argument there. It's just like oh well, no, it, it just hasn't ever been. And whenever you have that kind of thing with no imagination, you know that there's a suppressive intent there. Yeah, you know that there's a particular there's a particular axe to grind. And yeah. again, it's it's not that surprising that it it comes out of. Um, ostensible liberalism i get very difficult with like terms for people in the political class who tech who are basically used to be able to be classified by what publications they would write for yeah whereas now this was in unheard which is as we all know the kind of weird or conservative um venue of choice yeah yeah it's um the ostensible imagination and then the the yeah the use of the word conspire Coming from mm. coming from people who criticise these kind of things, it always like oh, it's just it's it's always it like it, the thing is with like the notion of Scottish independence, Welsh independence, like anywhere independence. To be honest, when it's people from who are very much not living in the place, hectoring, mm. it just rubs me the wrong way so much. It's the it's the it's the it's the very obvious use of history to a certain like 
political point where it doesn't apply. It's, it's yeah. a, it is a historical because, like, aside from anything, using feudal history to map out current political units yeah. is fucking really difficult because, like, those political units in in the medieval period were grouped around families. Yeah, you know, like. There, there is a whole section where she goes, well, actually, Wales claimed parts of the north as well. And it's like, yeah, because it was based around a royal ruling house. Mm. There was no notion of a nation state, mm. you know? Yeah. And, I mean, she kind of she kind of um, papers it all over by saying, like, um, what was it? As the global West becomes ever more diverse and international migration grows exponentially, the era of self-determination on the basis of an ethnic identity is over. Well, I believed that the logic of a federal structure would hold Wales permanently in the Union, local freedom within the protective embrace of a larger country. Jesus. And that embrace grows tighter and tighter <laughs> every year. Well, okay, <laughs> just just like on a base thing, how many MPs are there in the country? There's like 650? It's 650, yeah. And there's 40 Welsh ones? Yeah. So, no. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like even if they're like even if they were all unified as a solid voting block, they're utterly meaningless. <laughs> so you don't it's understandable why they'd like want to not. <laughs> there was a there was a there was just weird there's weird little like digs at the that the whole like I mean it's the Labour unionist argument that like yeah. nationalism is divisive yeah. now appeal to these English nationalists <laughs> nationalism but, uh, is really what... divisive now everybody now the police should really be allowed to um, walk into the house of Pat Finnegan and shoot him um, mm-hmm. yeah you know that's <laughs> how dare you be divisive you filthy nationalist there's a bit at the end like only now as Cardiff's leadership effectively erects a land border down yeah. off his dike. And bans the English from entering. Did they, did they? I mean, that was COVID lockdown. It was it was yeah. banning anyone from travelling. Like, like it, okay, to be honest, it was really funny watching um, people being told to go home. That was funny. But the reason they weren't allowed in wasn't because they were English. It w- that would also be funny if, like, you know, literally being sent to prison because they you said were told they're to, English. You were told to go home. Yeah, just because you're English. Yeah. Um, but oh, that that oh. It's um, it's the scent that was. I think that's one of the things that's really. It's kind of funny and it's also really aggravating, and it shows the mindset of the majority of Britain, of the majority of England to Wales, um, and Scotland is the COVID lockdown stuff of this sense of entitlement, like yeah, how dare you say we can't go there? Well, also a fa- failing to apply the same standards to English nationalism. I mean, we talk yeah. about Labour unionism and the good nationalism and bad nationalism. Mm. Um, it's exactly the same here. It's applying a a double standard. Like uh, England succeeded as a polity, as a nation state. Therefore, it's allowed to be like we're allowed to pander to the idea that there is an ethnic English identity and that this is politically important. Yeah. It's politically significant and needs to be addressed. Yeah, but should, I mean, this is a this is a fucking Lib Dem. Yeah, one of the greatest things about uh, the last kind of four years of like Trump and Boris and Orban and Bolsonaro is that like they're st- the, they're providing cover for a liberalism that is profoundly not liberal. Yeah, and is profoundly scared, like mm. profoundly terrified of development. So much so that they've winks themselves into a particular illiberal politics, Mm. you know? Yeah.
So actually, weirdly enough, um, I was looking at something on a kind of similar theme to the thing you had seen, and um, it was spurred on by there was something of a, a, a kind of Twitter argument uh, the other day that I, th- I thought was really interesting. Um, it was oh, were between... you getting sucked into the arguments about whether a hitbox is a cheap boxes as well? Because I was reading a lot of that. I, I was, yeah, very much so that I could find out what hitbox was. <laughs> um, no, this was an argument between um, uh, Ash Sarkar of Navara Media mm-hmm. and this new Twitter account that's been set up in the last couple of months, um, the Northern Independence Party, right? Yeah. Um, essentially, it's, it came from a, a, a tweet from Ash Sarkar that was basically saying, it said, startling statistics from Owen Hatherley's Red Metropolis's new book. Um, home ownership in Barrow and Furness, 74%. Home ownership in Hackney, 20%. There's more to the story of regional inequality than London equals rich elites. It's the home of the young who've nothing but their labour to sell. And this then descended into kind of um, the, the usual kind of like quote tweeting and saying, you know, this Twitter account for the Northern Independence Party replied with a graph on, on regional GDP inequality. Everyone accused each other of being bad faith and glib and whatever. Yeah. Um, but and you're going to wait really inter- be glib about everybody. <laughs> oh hell yes! Listen, I am the only person on a podcast <laughs> that I know who has lived in both the north-ish <laughs> the north-ish. and the south, but am from the south and am therefore objective. <laughs> Where's the furthest north um, you lived? Derby, uh, Lincoln. Oh yeah, Lincoln was the furthest. Which Lincoln is previous? Yeah, Lincoln is properly the um, the the kind of that limit where it goes from being the Midlands to the North. I'm not sure where it lies, and I'm not really interested in getting into it. I've always thought that the North starts somewhere north of Lincoln, but I, you know, that's a well. No, the a, border is. I cross the border every day when I walk the dog, and it's when you cross the North Circular into Redbridge, you're in the North, <laughs> and it's all North until Edinburgh, where it's a little bastion of South, and then it's back to being North. Well, luckily, you will get the chance to do that because uh, one of the things the Northern Independence Party wants to do is hold a referendum on actual Northern Independence, not a devolved parliament like previous, uh, like North Focus parties, but actual, actual independence. I think one of the, like, one, it just, it really attracted me because, like, I think there's a lot of people who are looking for what the fallout from Corbynism is going to be. Yeah. Um, and you know, one of the things that a, a truly functioning political media would do in you know its coverage of a resurgent left or Corbynism or whatever yeah. is that they would treat something like this seriously, like identifying that these are actually some real fault lines appearing within what was Corbynism, and you know, taking it from there, spinning it out, seeing the other fault lines. But I mean, you know, we won't get that. Well, like, no, I think you see, there is a, there's only one fault line between. But uh, like <clears throat> amongst the left, and that is that there are some who are reasonable, solid individuals, and then the other ones are racists, and they all hate <laughs> Jews. That's literally the only fault line in the left, according to the media. There are tropes, <laughs> and then there are trolls. Tropes and trolls. It's the only two. Oh God, David Baddiel's latest tour. It's a big sign. Yeah, so I, it kind of attracted me because, it's like, I am I am interested in what's going to come after this. And like, yeah. as I say, the argument wasn't that great. It was a lot of chi- chiming in on, you know, have you ever been there? Which seems like a somewhat reductive way of, like, proving that, like, being able to gather evidence for a particular way of thinking. Like, going there is one of them, but going mm. there for two days doesn't necessarily seem like. 
like ne- like not it's not that it's not necessary but it's like she's not going to live there is she yeah maybe that is the point though yeah but i think that like um it was a it was kind of a silly i, I think the actual original tweet was kind of like kind of silly and kind of reductive um because it's like you know there's more to the story of regional inequality than london equals rich elites true it's the home of the young who've nothing but their labor to sell and it's like well, that's that's everywhere you know yeah. that's every that city the, that's every that's every place yeah i mean like home of the it's 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 reductive it's it's but then there were also a lot of people taking that at face value and saying that's all that uh, Ash was saying, and I don't think that's that's true. No. Like the 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 housing statistic um, was like the underlying. St- I mean, I, I've not read Red, Metro- Red Metropolis, so I don't know like how they how they frame that statistic. But like, I'd be interested to know like the statistics of how those homes in Barrow are owned, whether it's by they've been bought up by landlords and rented out, or you know what 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 status they are. Yeah, I would also probably I imagine more retirees. It's also yeah. It's also kind of weird that it would be Barrow and Furness because I mean, like Barrow and Furness is one of the places that, contrary to most trends after the kind of death of uh, industrialism, Barrow and Furness has like the UK's largest shipyard. We talked about it last week with yeah. um, nuclear submarines. It's where the nuclear submarines are made. Yeah. It's also got the second largest offshore wind farm in the world. Yeah, so that is in the weird. world, yeah, that is a and it's like it would probably be on someone to explain why the closest thing to like a green industrial revolution still has such high levels of child poverty, which Baron Furness does. I think it's four four in ten children are born into poverty. Yeah. It's also got uh, an unemployment rate that's kind of, or at least last year, was comparable with most of the uh, the rest of the north, like um, comparable with like Blackpool and the northeast generally, hovering around like uh, Barrow unemployment is four point five, Blackpool unemployment four point seven. And like the northeast is 4.9 as a as a whole. UK average was 3.8. But yeah, there was a lot of like kind of grasp. There was that that fall into authentocrat stuff, Mm. which just it's it's pointless because you're not arguing over any particular thing. You're arguing for which person's hometown has a greater moral authority. Yeah, you know, it's 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 yeah, kind of. Kind of silly, and and at the same time, like the uh, like the kind of northern independence people kind of fell into. I, I actually the best um, way I heard it described was um, they were treating London like a girl who didn't want to fuck you in school. <laughs> um, which, in fairness, in their other literature, they've just they've literally just put up a um, a website called freethenorth.co.uk and. Um, they do say that like this doesn't this isn't a kind of anti anti south thing like not anti south the people it's just you know pro north it's they go out their way to say that they're socialist and they you know it's not just nationalist independence and all, all of that kind of stuff yeah um, so yeah this Twitter argument it wasn't really a rigorous like political exercise or anything but it is the kind of um, it does kind of demonstrate the kind of responses that people get when you're talking about the north-south divide you know you have to them people saying um to ash sarkar have you ever been to the north have you ever been to baron furnace have you seen how we live it doesn't come across so much as an authentic thing as it does a we have a certain amount of pain around our social conditions and we would like you to hear it for once because there is always the fear that like even under corbynism 
even though I think actually the manifesto in 2019 went out of its way to say that it would try and pull resources and investment away from the southeast and away from London in order to put it back into these places, there is always, there has to be that suspicion after 40 years of underdevelopment that any kind of nationwide investment scheme is going to fall in the southeast most mostly because most of these things have been put through business and are in order to attract business. And if it does go to people, it goes through somebody's employer. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's it's understandable that people have that have that reaction. Like, yeah, we've seen um, that before. We've seen it happen so many times with like the northern yeah, it's powerhouse. Because it, it, that, it's, yeah. yeah, it's the absolute model of the way that you try and like the latest thing is leveling up. There's, there's going to be no leveling up in this recession, and people no. know it. Yeah, you know. Um, so yeah, I, like I, I'm not even going to go into like saying that i can speak true like true north or whatever <laughs> um but i do think like how i have experienced being poor in the north midlands um and the difference between poverty in london despite the statistics despite london obviously having the three highest rates of child poverty um it is it is slightly different like the the the, the house prices are different, but then that doesn't really make a difference if you have no access to the kind of credit or the, the kind of mortgage services that you would that you would want to have. The job market is different if you're poor in the north. Like job creation is higher in the southeast, which is basically just a euphemism for saying that all those subsidiary and associated services are more likely to be located in the southeast. If you've mm. got something that needs investment or rich customers or a supply chain or something like that, it's probably located in the southeast. Yeah. Um, and I think like that was one of the main reasons I moved to London was that I had a fucking terrible time in Birmingham. Right, I moved to Birmingham in I think two thousand and eight. No, maybe two thousand and nine. Yeah, just right. when the um, just when the credit crunch was hitting, and it hit Birmingham fucking hard. There was another um, article in the in the Guardian this week about how like the, how Birmingham is really going to suffer in this next recession because it's built all this stuff around retail and all this expensive investment mm. around the center of Birmingham. And that's mm -hmm. all going to be hollowed out by the fact by uh, retail collapse and, and COVID. Yeah. Um, I had a really bad time in Birmingham. I went through more jobs in Birmingham than I think I've ever been. And it's like the first time that I've ever just like turned up to a job and it had closed and no one had told me. Oh God. Gotcha. You know? That was that cafe. Wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, Birmingham's the second city. Yeah. And like, that never gets like how often do you hear about actual Birmingham in like national news? No, you're way more likely like, to hear about hear something that Jess Phillips has said than anything actually about Birmingham. Because it is all kind of um it is all treated as like this interchangeable thing. There's no like regional diversity expressed. It's all like if something happens, it's a crime that happened in Sutton Coalfield that might as well have happened in Mansfield or, you know, Hearn. Yeah. It really, uh, it really isn't isn't differentiated in the national imagination. Um, like, I think the quality of life is different as well. If you're poor in in London, like in London, there. As soon as I moved here, like, like my family's from London, but from the different London of like the seventies, eighties, um, when there was kind of more space and money hadn't driven so much out. Yeah, house prices hadn't driven so much out. So like the I when I moved here, I moved to Hounslow and like the pressure was immediate. Like if you fuck up in London, you leave. You yeah. have to leave because there's no bagginess. Not that there's increasingly in that much bagginess in like 
the labour market elsewhere. But like, especially in London, you know, you miss a month's rent, you've got no chance of catching up on it. Mm. You know, I did successfully live in Birmingham while being able to catch up on rent, even though I was frequently unemployed. And like, obviously, the the stats show like a north south divide. Like, um, the health divide is larger than any comparable country. Rates of mortality are higher um, among certain age groups. Uh, there was a study recently that showed that excess deaths in the north um, under the age of 65, I think, um, were about a third more than they were in the south. Yes. They have just a higher mortality rate. Yeah. Um, the jobs divide is larger. You know, um, it makes a huge difference where you live if you're looking for a job, as we've said. Um, disposable income divide is um, larger than any other country. Um, the productivity divide is is larger. You know, if you live in the south your productivity is uh, one of the highest in the developed world and parts of Northern Ireland, Wales and North of England are less productive than parts of like Poland and Hungary, Mm. you know, places we would traditionally have associated with like Soviet bloc and that. Um, But like, so that's the kind of background of where the Northern independence movement kind of is, is coming from. There's been a few parties for Northern independence in the last decade, as as I've mentioned, like uh, there was the Northeast party stood in 2017, won a few council seats. Um, There's the Yorkshire party um, campaigning for like a devolved parliament in Yorkshire. And most of these had the goals of like basically more or less devolved power or autonomy still cited within the United Kingdom. Yeah. Uh, The the funniest one is the the Northern party in 2015. So they were co-founded by um, a conservative MP called Harold Ellotson. Okay. Um, he was a conservative MP um, who represented uh, Blackpool North from like 1992. And he actually defected to the Lib Dems in 2002. But the interesting thing about him was he's yet another one of those weird MPs who was hugely pro-Serb. Oh. Like, <laughs> apparently, according to The Independent in 1996... Uh, they claimed Ellotson moonlighted as an MI6 agent. After visiting Yugoslavia in 1992, Mr. Ellotson notified his MI6 handlers that donations were reaching the Conservative Party from Serbia. MI6 received special sanction from the Prime Minister for Mr. Ellotson to continue his secret role after his election in 1992. (laughs) He carried out his unpaid intelligence work in Eastern Europe while representing the electors of Blackpool. He also (laughs) ran an extensive network of private business interests in the region while using his public position to mount a controversial defence of the Serb regime. This country's just the weirdest, stupidest thing. It's so strange, isn't it? Yeah, Um, yeah, he was a a guest of the Serbian president, Slobodan Milosevic, at least four times. (laughs) Just normal for a Blackpool MP. Yeah, it's uh, perfectly normal, perfectly normal. Um, Yeah, so the Northern Independence Party would offer a referendum to the people in Yorkshire, Lancashire, Cumbria, Merseyside, Greater Manchester, Durham, Northumberland and Cheshire. Um, they would also, um, they say they, they would respect the rights of anyone in border territories to join us subject to a local referendum. Oh, to join. But so, so let me get, so they'd have a referendum and then, you know, have their new Northern place. Mm -hmm. Um, and then if you were living next door, you could vote to secede. You could vote to secede, I guess, yeah. Okay, that's pretty cool. I mean, cool. British state are probably going to be fine with that, right? <laughs> just like the idea is like, it's like within like just every couple of years, it's like, oh, we lost another county. Oh, well. 
Um, at the moment, the interim leader is Philip Proudfoot, who's a political anthropologist with the British Institute in Amman, in Jordan. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I could find on him, yeah, I, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, who was a, he was a Labour supporter until recently, um, okay. according to various articles I've found. The Twitter account is pretty heavily memeified, but yep. it's and it sort of gave me a feeling of Corbynism, like Corbynism interrupted. Yeah. you know, like. They're just continuing on, but that's fine. That's what it no, is. No, that is. Um, but, the, you know, they've had a few articles in Red Pepper and Nation.comry and things like that. On a basic level, I can definitely understand a renewed independence drive mm. uh, from pretty much anywhere, to be honest. Yeah. Um, despite all the framing of levelling up and the Red Wall and all that kind of stuff, London-centric capital's not going anywhere. It's still the primary um, driver of political life. All the talk of the Red Wall of localism, northern powerhouses. There's been no concrete plans laid out. There's there's nothing that involve anything other than increasing planning powers to put them at the mercy of property developers. You know, this this 47th turn of saving the North has to wear thin at some point. Yeah. So, you know, I can understand having a having a reaction yeah. to that. And especially Definitely. now that the kind of progressive alternative has has kind of gone away. Yeah. Um, you can you can definitely understand that. Um, but I do think it's it's incumbent upon any kind of regional socialist group that wants that kind of independent to account for the actual composition of, of locales. And that's what kind of kind of made me wonder about this when this argument came up. Um, I mean, traditionally, the kind of socialist line on unionism was that any way of anything that divided the working class in its moment of triumph was counter-revolutionary, right? Yeah. I was even looking and I found an excerpt from the uh, the Communist Party of Britain, Marxist-Leninists. Yep. Um, it was a pamphlet called Unity Not Devolution from the 70s. Um, and it goes, nationhood is the essential genius of a historically constituted community, which in a particular geographical area over a considerable considerable period of time has developed as a single economic unit with its own peculiar arts, culture, skills, and language for the enrichment of life. The fact that there are differences throughout Britain in culture and sometimes language, but usually only accent, does not make those individual localities into separate nations. Likewise, neither do the similar cultures and language of the Americans and British make them into one nation. The development of England, Scotland, and Wales into a single British nation was a logical historical process, although, mm. as with the transformation of any society from being predominantly feudal and agricultural into being predominantly capitalist and industrial, this process was often brutal. And I think, like, this this thing kind of, like, it glosses over the fact that, like, the development of a single economic unit, i.e. Britain, with its own peculiar lang- particular language, involved actively repressing local languages, like, yeah. most obviously with, like, Welsh or Gaelic or Scots. Yeah. But also, like, regional dialects yeah. were not considered proper accents for a long, long time. Um, and the thing as well that, like, all the talk of, like, it being a an essential genius nationhood of being a logical historical process like the things that make things into nations is like the claim of a particular power group of a particular state yeah you know whether that is in alliance with local like bourgeoisie aristocracy power holders is what i'm trying to say local bigwigs local knobs yeah whether that's in an alliance with local local power holders or whether it's kind of through brute conquest it's still like again as with the wales thing it's still a, a, a historical political process it's not there's nothing natural or anything about it that just confuses the issue um 
the, the other bit of this pamphlet is uh, continues. Devolution for Scotland and Wales, which must be seen as the first step towards the internal breakup of Britain, has nothing to do with liberation and no section of the working class will benefit. The argument that the Scottish people will benefit more from North Sea oil after devolution or independence is a fallacy. None of our natural resources will be put to a sensible or beneficial use until the working class itself has gained state power <laughs> easy, and is able to control the use of these valuable and irreplaceable resources. Otherwise, they will be frittered away for some short-term profit sold to the highest bidder. It is as if the workers in London benefit by having the world's largest financial centre on their doorstep. All the workers in Yorkshire will become wealthy because of the large coal deposits there. It is the question of who owns and controls these resources which matters. Otherwise, the argument becomes one of whether we want our exploiters to have an English, Welsh or Scottish accent, as if that mattered. Um, and so, like, I don't agree with, like, this is the classical kind of UK unionist socialist position. Yeah. And, like, I understand, I do understand it lo its logic. Yeah. Because, I mean, this was from, uh, like, 1978-1979. And at that point, the standard line was that capitalism was in irreversible decline after all the crises of the 70s. And, like, the notion that capitalism capitalism is in irreversible and constant decline is a point of view that I largely agree with on Marxist terms. You know, yeah. even now you can see capitalism finding limits it can't surpass, like climate change or the human nervous system or <laughs> rates of profit or anything like that, you know. Um, but the idea here is that any disturbance to this continued decline would only embolden capitalists. It would only divide the working class. And it's like that kind of thing of, no, don't disrupt the working class now. We've almost won. Yeah. And uh, from the vantage point of 2020, I don't know if you noticed, but capitalist civilization seems pretty bold. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think it I think it underestimates the ability of capitalism to, like, pretend like, those, at the very least, pretend like those limits aren't circumventable. Yeah. You know, they, they, they are going to continue. They're not just going to give up. And so, like, essentially, and you've seen now, the working class is more fragmented than it's ever been. Hmm. So, you know, I think it is worth, like, thinking about independence movements again, you know? Well, it's um, that, thing, that thing I said with the, just the numbers. Yeah. In what, in, it's, yeah, it's all well and good, the notion that if, like, all of Britain was socialist tomorrow, it would be better if it was all unified to work towards a common goal but that's not ever going to fucking happen mm. so I mean like it's not never going to happen in the ballot box I mean it depends on where, where do you think like this working class power that's going to be built and is going and importantly is going to be stronger because of it being united yeah like that is the that is the key thing there like how are you going to maintain this united if that poverty if that working class experience is experienced differently the experience comes from capitalism. Their experience mm. is of living in a capitalist civilization. It's not just of being working class. It's of, of of living as a working class person in that capitalist country and under those rules. And if that comes off differently, your experience is going to be different. And mm. that is going to be a, a like a dividing factor. And like if you're looking at it in 2020, like I can definitely empathize with people who feel like all of the other ways of building that power have been completely exhausted. I mean, where are you going to look now, like nationally? The unions? Hmm. No. The unions have been have been firmly crushed, with important exceptions. Yeah. But it seems unlikely that there's going to be another huge wave of union activity with all the interference from the state, with the state of, like, the way people are living now. Like, it seems unlikely. 
uh, uh, the Labour Party. Like, well, yeah. Well, yeah. any notion that the Labour Party was ever was going to carry on being like it was under Corbyn is firmly put to bed by not just you know the little the, all the little things that they've been doing and all the the you know triangulate on this, abstain on that, but not a word of solidarity, not a word of help to any of the students in universities at the moment. No. That's like another whole bastion of young people there that they could be but no obviously they don't care about that because they've just had an experience of what happens when young people get involved in the Labour Party. They yeah. get called dickheads online. There's no there's no strategy around it. There's no like, well okay we can sacrifice the students if we keep old people. It's like mm. you're not keeping old people. No. You're you're you know it's it's again that's reductive. Yeah. But it's largely true. <laughs> Over sixty five they vote for Brexit they vote for conservatives yeah. like that's that's a fact it could change mm. it might change and it might be worth putting forward an offer but that there, there's no offer being put forward to anybody yeah. at the moment anyway that's enough about that labor party um, <laughs> but the, the point is that all of these things have proven incapable of like resisting neoliberalism and now we're kind of moving into this mutant phase of neoliberalism this reactionary ethno-nationalism just anything to let the ruling class cling on so it's yeah. like oh a bit of bit of ethno-nationalism yeah that's fine we'll do that bit of political repression yeah fuck that we'll do that anything goes so they had the state in a certain sense doesn't even have to stick to the logic of its own capitalist position anymore it will cause it problems but you know it's not it's not a contradiction for boris to say yeah we're fully behind small business and then basically preside over the abolition of small business in yeah. covid yeah it's not. Uh, it's not contradictory. It might not turn out, but it's not contradictory for them. But I could see, like, a, like, yeah, an actual alternative centre of power in the form of like an independent Scotland or an independent North. Um, I could see that being a decent psychological change, actually fragmenting and rather than just having to constantly look to topple the throne. You know, yeah. that's how that's how everything happens in Britain. You know, you vote four years at a time yeah. in seats that are like seventy five percent solid one party seats yeah to send a balance of mps to basically empower one sovereign leader who decides everything separately from any any kind of oversight or any kind of democratic input in between those four years so like fragmenting that and actually having at least two polities or, or a, a new thing to look at mm. might be a useful thing to do you know um and like it's like people who say that without Wales and Scotland, England would be doomed to eternal Tory government. Like, firstly, even as an Englander, that doesn't make really a strong moral case why Wales <laughs> and Scotland should stay should stay married to the Union. And and secondly, like England would not be the same thing if it was released from being Britain. You know, yeah. the the priorities that having Scotland and Wales in the Union, although people don't think of those areas enough, having them as part of it and then having them leave has to cause some kind of psychological change. It might cause immense revanchism of, like, you know, English partisans in the border regions mm. going over to nick cars and stuff. But it would be something different, and it would it would force maybe oh. some of this... Maybe some of this hegemony, it would force it to the surface into a place where you can actually grapple it, because you can't grapple it at the moment. It's just assumed, you know? Sorry, I've just got um, the notion of, uh, like, an independent Scotland and... Tories get into power on the back of building a wall because of those filthy Scottish migrants coming over the border. <laughs> it would one you know that as soon as there is an independent Scotland, 
Mm. There will be stories about the Scottish, like, okay, let's say siphoning off English literacy, something like that. Let's say <laughs> stealing our precious um, fish, uh, stopping stopping English fishing boats in yeah. international waters. Yeah. There will one hundred percent be those stories with with England the way it is now. Yeah. That will one hundred percent happen. It will happen with. I mean, it virtually happened with. I mean, it did happen. You you just saw the Polly McKenzie article. Yeah. She yeah. complained about the border and about English tourists being stopped in discrimination. Yeah. That's the main thing that English people seem to talk about with Wales is like they talk their language in front of me and I got beaten up in Cardiff on a night out because just for being English. Yeah. That has to get worse during independence. You know it's going to happen. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like I could see quite a lot of positive things, right? This is aside from whether it's likely to happen. Yeah. Um, but, like, I do have, like, some problems with i think like any regional independence thing of like it's not necessarily like my big one big objection to regional independence is not like a blockage it wouldn't stop me thinking that independence might be desirable if enough people vote for it but it is kind of something that i think would have to be addressed in any kind of independent north or wales or or scotland or whatever which is like neoliberalism and globalization Mm. like their big win historically has been the ability to free up capital to flow anywhere you know northumbrian capitalists independent Mm. capitalists they remain capitalists they're linked into the global economy and with those links into the global economy mean that you any independent territory is going to necessarily have less negotiating room and a, a, a less powerful position a less powerful state position to stand against those kind of flows and the way that they've influenced politics already in the last like 40 years even if those polities are federated capitals all still integrated um like it's the thing is it's not like actually a new thing like a bidding war over investment already takes place in all of these places you know like regions competing to attract the best investment and trying to build whatever you know panacea the current decade offers you know whether it's call centers big tech i don't know bitcoins green energy is probably going to be another one of those things everyone says don't worry green energy's coming we just have to attract the companies yeah 48 billion pounds later and you've got <laughs> like a couple of call centers running on on solar power uh-huh. um i mean like fracking for instance fracking there's fracking in uh lancashire right now like does independence abolish the commercial pressures that cause fracking to be a thing yeah or is it simply the same fight without the larger powers of the british state you know, are you saying that like, these I'm, small places need to be defended by the noble British state? <laughs> that is the thing. That would be well, the that's thing. That's the returning like, thing. It's because, like, yeah, it's like I, I, I agree. If the British state ever showed any ounce of wanting to stop anything bad to happen, or if there was any chance of that, it's true. Yeah, it's true. Like, it's not like um, Plaid and. Um, this Northern Independence Party haven't addressed this. Hmm. Um, yeah, that, like there, there are you know solid socialists in. I mean, the NIP is actually as it proclaims to be a socialist movement, but Ply has plenty of socialists in it now. Yeah. Um, and like like people like Desolation Radio, they're not like blind to what would happen if you just had you had an independent nation that was just business as usual. Hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. I just I guess like I'm not even saying it's worse like even like maybe even fracking for instance maybe it could be more easily opposed with local control 
Mm. You know, maybe because it would be there would there might be greater democratic direct decision making over those things. Yeah. Like maybe you have more. But like ultimately, like Quadrilla, the fracking company, they're still a company based in Lancashire and they still have American, Australian and Southern English money behind it. Yeah. You know, that like that problem doesn't change just because you you reframe it, you know. Mm. Um, my key thing would be how effective a smaller regional polity would actually stand up to these things, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, say, okay, like another example, like an independent East Anglia, right? They would have the potential to have a decent amount of wind farms and they would be able to use those wind farms to power people's homes and reduce the dependent on fossil fuels. Have you spoken to Norfolk farmers about building wind farms? They <laughs> fucking hate well, that shit. The exactly. only way that East Anglia is going to become wind farms is if we force them to become wind farms. Um, but like you would, you would assume that an independent country would be able to generate these resources, control it, control the profits from it, both monetary and like infrastructure wise. And all I will say is that what does global capitalism, the US, the UK, what do they do when they're faced with resources they're denied access to? (laughs) Yeah. What do they do when those resources are available for sale but not at a price that benefits those who harvest those resources, let's say. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, capitalism doesn't recognise limits to its control over those things. You know, a local government asking for development help, yeah. quote, would put itself in the exact same position as former colonies, mm. you know? Um, it would require, at the very least, a huge amount of political willpower to resist that. And can you can you muster that alongside independence you know i think in scotland i I genuinely think that's that could happen it's a big maybe given the smp but i i could see it happening i mean if you think about uh i mean the the closest you've kind of got to english independence i guess would be the glc again london so it's so it's different it's too close to the heart of british state power but the glc had a very antagonistic relationship with central government, um, Liverpool Council yeah. with, uh, in the 80s. And, like, if you look at the kind of horrors that were visited on it, in both literally and in culture, um, that were visited upon Liverpool County Council in the 80s by the, like, by the Conservative government, you'd have to think what's to prevent a kind of, like, let's say, a northern independence being stymied in this way, even if it had, like, popular support, you know? Mm. If, as like, it's totally unfair. It's totally, like, counterintuitive to modern kind of liberation rhetoric, the rhetoric around liberation and independence with Brexit and individualism and regions and all the stuff that Tories put out. Like, it's, it's counterintuitive that, of course, why would they be so opposed to I- I- independence? But as yeah, as as counterintuitive as it, as it seems, it's not just a rhetorical argument. It has to be an argument over power. It's it's England, mm. you know. The ruling class will not look at look at Northern Ireland. The ruling class will not let that stuff go. Mm. Um, so I think it's it's just it's worth thinking about things in in those in those terms. Like it's not as simple as like one referendum and then whoop, well, they voted yes, that's fine. Yeah. Um, and I mean, like even if you're going one stage down from actual military intervention in the, to prevent the secession of the North. Like, even before the referendum, it wouldn't be, like, unopposed by the British media. As much as you think, like, the North is ignored by the British media now, imagine what happens if there's an independence referendum. Yeah. Like, 
um, if you remember the success, the successful campaign of one Dominic Cummings against the Northeast Assembly in 2004. Oh, I don't know. Um, and you look at how the British establishment behaved during the Scottish referendum. Like yeah. they utilised, they were terrified of that. And that's like, could re- definitely be called another like nation with yeah. a separate history because it was literally another nation until 1701. Yeah. Um, but they, like the English employed every emotional effect from like, sentimental we love you scotland don't leave us to telling them that the economy would collapse to like actually by the end like scotland leaving will hurt england which was like a way of trying to mobilize the english to oppose scottish independence actively you know up in the days before it was getting that desperate and even then they only won because they promised them a bunch of shit as well yeah and like, yeah, like obviously what's going for you in independence is like an enthusiasm, a local pride, a, a patriotism on a local level, like yeah. whatever, whatever emotion you can, you can motivate in that. But like you can sell that, but can you also sell the required socialism yeah. when you're subject to the same constraints as you have, you had with Corbyn, like in the national discourse? Yeah. It was, it was completely kind of destroyed, you know? Mm. Um, yeah, because like I say, like the Tories have offered in rhetoric, the Tories have offered kind of choice, regional autonomy, like uh, big society. Even Blair, like you have choice in public services, or Thatcher, you have you should take individual responsibility for your own like life. Like independence in a nation is like the ultimate responsibility. It's the ultimate emphasis on choice. It's the yeah. ultimate like big society thing you know like well, yeah, it's the rather than having the... of um of um right to buy i mean yeah kind of, yeah actually that's not a bad way of putting it yeah mm. it's rather than having the state provide you with things it's taking things into your own hands and that's yeah. implicit in the rhetoric of an independence movement but like the re- rhetoric is not the reality mm. you know yeah and i mean i think there's yeah that like it the, the risk is that actually this kind of independence movement coming from like ex Corbynites sounds yeah. like it's like an ideological off ramp. It's like mm. there is no, and I, I definitely feel it. Don't get me wrong, but like you've reached this cul-de-sac with parliamentary politics where you we tried our absolute best, mm. debatable, but tried your absolute best to get kind of an egalitarian, even dare I say it, progressive um, yeah. alternative into into power. And it got defeated, and like the easy off ramp is to split away, and like I, I definitely feel that, like, and maybe it might work, but like, there also has to be the element of not kidding yourselves that you're calling the British states bluff. Yeah, like yeah. So the, oh, oh, the Tory government said you were all about localism and giving power back to the people, and like now I've had this independence refer- referendum, and now you're cracking my skull, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um. Yeah, don't put it past them to ultimately scare the people you're trying to appeal to with the fear of not being under Big Daddy State, mm. you know? Because, mm. um, like, this this independent region that you're trying to form, it, I don't think it would be... I don't think it would survive under the kind of... the gravity of the discourse and the rhetoric that you have around the English state now, uh, let alone the economic gravity of England, London, the city of London, and of, like, global capitalism, you know? Yeah. Thinking about the rhetoric of independence and how everyone points out how hypocritical it is that Brexit was celebrated as this hugely independent thing, and yet Welsh and Scottish independence are not treated with the same gravity, yeah. almost like 
there's some kind of English exceptionalism. <laughs> um, but I remember something like it was something Joe Kennedy tweeted ages ago that really stuck with me. Um, and I, I don't think he's ever written on it anymore. I might be wrong, but like para, um, paraphrasing what it was about. Well, basically, it was about Brexit being more about the relations within localities than between localities. So rather than it being a thing between North and South or between the elite and the left behind or whatever, it was more about the relationship within areas. Right. Okay. And. It's something about, like, the way I've chosen to interpret it and the way I've been thinking, actually, particularly recently, is there's something about, like, the populist, like, red wall, the left behind, the Brexit class, whatever. I mean, have you noticed, actually, how the the name left behind has kind of exited political vernacular since Mm. Boris's government came in? Mm. Weird that, because it's kind of implicitly... Uh, indicting the present government because they're still the ones leaving people behind. Yeah. But now it's the red wall. It's sturdy. It's solid. It's uh, defendable. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Like whatever you want to call it, the existing problems of post-industrial populaces who feel economically and socially apart from their current political system, right? Hmm. Usually older security conscious voters, except for Brexit, Blah, 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 blah. And, like, I've been reading some essays about Hungary and how the dynamic of their right-wing turn has been accepted in their, in their like, provinces and that. And I can see some similarities with, like, the way that this has kind of transformed a lot of the political situation in England. Yeah. And essentially, like, over the last 40 years, you've had the process of centralising the important bits of power and devolving everything else to local councils. And it's created this sense that um, for politics and for day-to-day stuff your closest representative of the state is councils, right? Not the big decisions, but the kind of everyday ones, council tax, transport, bins, all the little annoyances, the things that make your day worse. Hmm. Um, But as far as actual, like, power holders go, like the richer, the professional peoples in those localities, like the traditional elites in localities, I've got no better way of terming it. Um, As far as they go, there's more segregation. There's more separation between, like, the working class in localities and their elites. They go to different schools. They shop in different areas. And importantly, the reverse is also true. Like, there's no particular link between the presence of those elites and the welfare of the areas. They don't work there. They don't add much to the locale. The movement of wealth and care and attention has moved south with their elites, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like it's like it's almost like local elites have no obligation to their local area in materiality, just in ideology. So your council, your councillor could very easily like pick up and move somewhere else and apply the exact same set of skills to another borough hmm. and it wouldn't make any difference according to like the ideology of that particular political class. Yeah. Like, yeah, of course there are councillors who are committed to an area and who live and work there, but like that feeling of abandonment by traditional liberal, liberal elites is really, really strong in, in Brexit discourse. And it's a bit broad strokes, but suffice it to say that Brexit, despite its main backers being kind of like global capitalists, essentially, their significant driving force was national capitalists, like your JCB diggers, your Tim yeah. Witherspoons, those people. It's only a facade, but that's probably enough for Brexit politics. National entrepreneurs who did not manage to become junior partners of international capitalists during the kind of neoliberal era, either as like local service providers or local suppliers, they were increasingly pitted against the kind of dominant block of big corporations. Yeah. They thought that in when Thatcher brought in this kind of restructuring that happened under neoliberalism, that 
those capitalists thought they would benefit in terms of access to the spoils of public services, in terms of deregulation, what they're allowed to do with their stuff. But actually what happened is they were actually, their markets were just opened up and they were cut out by larger, larger conglomerates and global corporations, right? Hmm. The favorable policy environment spoken, spoken of in the new labor years was for foreign inward investment. It wasn't for boosting capitalists who were in their locality, right? Ultimately, how this relates to independence is, I don't think it's an unimportant question to ask that if these national capitalists were the drivers of a deregulatory and reactionary Brexit, a reaction against globalization, on behalf of an electorate that felt abandoned by their political elites, wouldn't these dynamics come into play when you're trying to drive an independence that's supposed to be socialist? Wouldn't it end up the same way as like Wales is now? Like basically socialists announcing with glee the latest investment that say they've spent £68 billion to being fired. 500 minimum wage jobs to Cardiff. Yeah. You know, like yeah. any kind of independence movement would have to think very carefully about like what is what what their potential base is going to be in trying to secure this this independence referendum and this independence like yes vote for instance. Saying they you need know? a vanguard. There is something about there is something to it. Like I don't know enough about vanguard theory really. Like cuz it seems all old old hat to me like the idea of taking over a state with a group of 200 lads yeah and lasses <laughs> uh, i just can't imagine it it's like it's like when you walk around central london and you see all the massive buildings and you think christ socialism has to conquer this yeah you know like it seems too big so i kind of like so um, it just reminded me know. of um last week with all the nuclear research uh, one yeah. of the things i watched with um asking this english guy who was like a volunteer He's this volunteer nuclear task force guy in his little his little village, and it was like, so what are you going to do if the bombs drop? And he's like, well, I'll get some lads together, and we'll you know maintain order. And it's that <laughs> that English desire to like, well, look, shit, bombs, get some lads. There are no fortresses that a bunch of lads cannot conquer. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, like uh, there's a really good book. Um, uh, New Model Island by Alex Niven, okay. um, who talks about like regionalism and like he talks about how he's never been able to really conceive of himself as English because he's northern, he's got Irish ancestry, he's like he's got a Catholic background, that kind of thing. But mm. um, he talks about like the beginnings of any independence movement being having to be a change in like your your mind map. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he starts kind of proposing looking at the at the islands as an archipelago rather than a sealed kingdom. So um, rather than thinking that this union exists because of a shared uh, geography or a shared culture or a shared uh, history, you start thinking of that there are different locales over time that shaped a region closer to some regions away from others. I mean, you, he mentions like the Dal... Dalriata Kingdom. I can't probably pronounce that wrong. Um, which was a, like a kingdom based on the west coast of Scotland and with parts of Ulster, mm. right? That was a kingdom because if in, if you're in an era when you have to reach things by boat, when it's faster to reach things using the sea, um, that's going to make like seaborne kingdoms a lot more a lot easier to hold together. So yeah. essentially, you have you have different parts of England being in co in contact with different parts of Scotland, being closer to those parts than you would. Um, to like a central thing in London mm -hmm. and like yeah I think it's a, a decent thing to think of like you think of the mechanics of what a, an independent Scotland looks like and you think of forming a different kind of 
relationship of the North having a different kind of relationship with an independent Scotland than it would be with London. I could see it becoming making a lot more sense to people that we have all these economic ties with Scotland and, you know, it would be easier to, it would be closer to independence than just straight up referring, defining yourself as we don't want to be so close to London. Yeah. You know, defining yeah. yourself in this, as one one kingdom within this sealed kingdom, mm. you know? And like NIP haven't particularly uh, framed things in an anti-London way. You know, they mentioned the Stuart Hall quote about how race is the modality in which classes lived that there's a regional experience of class. We're not, you know, we want allies in the South to help us help us achieve independence. So they're not like automatically being exclusionary or locking things down. It's just like, how would you deal with <laughs> independent Scotland existing? Northern England holds a referendum and every li- single liberal on Twitter is full of suspected Scottish interference in the Northern Independence Poll. <laughs> Every centrist Twitter account replying to somebody with those golden red with, hello, troll, how's the weather in Dunfermline? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, ultimately these things are, I, I don't at all blame people for looking for ways out, especially after Corbynism kind of failed in the way it did. Yeah. We're, we're so, as a group, as a movement, we're kind of running out of options to oppose capitalism, the trends that we've seen of austerity, of deprivation. They're all, they're all pointing in the same direction. And I think in the absence of like a stronger, more strident union movement of a parliamentary option, I think that some kind of splitting is going to end up being inevitable as yeah. a, a way of arresting these trends. But I do think that the old opposition of, uh, I don't think the old opposition of left wing, of the left wing to devolution really applies much anymore. Not that I think it's actually that present. But um, it's worth considering the ways of framing these things um, because the problem doesn't stem from literal geography, it stems from from political geography. And like, I'm largely in favour of independence with those caveats, you know? Yeah, yeah, same. Okay, that's us for this week. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us at WDTATW underscore podcast, follow me at BM Bergamo, follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.